we start a new sermon series this Sunday on the book of Ruth titled A Life of Mercy. Now, let me just, let me introduce this series by setting it in context where the book of Ruth sits. If you look at the first verse of Ruth, it says a lot in a very short phrase. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this, this beautiful, tragic, but beautiful story is set between, in the Bible, the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the, the book of Judges is a most depressing read, okay? So if you're looking for something depressing to read, I would suggest the book of Judges in the Bible. It, it is one of the darkest books in the Bible. It describes uh, most of Israel turning from the Lord. Uh, it describes uh, bloody battles of, of nations coming in and invading. It describes darkness and gloom. It describes even Israel itself, the tribes turning on one another and fighting. It's a dark book. It's a description of, of a period in Israel's history where there was utter chaos. And yet right in the middle of this chaos of the book of Judges, towards the end of this period, we get this beautiful story of Ruth about this, this small remnant of people within, within Israel that sacrificed for one another, that extended mercy to one another, that cared for one another. And that paved the way for the establishment of the kingdom of Israel that we read that starts in 1 Samuel with Saul being the first king. And so in between utter chaos and the establishment of the kingdom, you have this story of Ruth, a story of God's people being kind and merciful and hospitable to one another. And it teaches us something very important. And that is this, that in the chaos of our world, in the brokenness of our world, God establishes and builds his kingdom through the mercy and the kindness of his people. Now, that may seem like a rather benign statement, but if you understand the times that we live in, you'll understand that's actually a pretty provocative and challenging statement, that in the chaos of this world, God builds his kingdom through the mercy and the kindness of his people. Let me explain if you live somewhere between the second century and the 16th century, and somewhere around the Mediterranean Sea, Northern Africa, Southern Europe, maybe as far east as modern day Iran, if you live somewhere in there and you and your family was gonna go on a long journey, or if you were having to flee your home for some reason, on your long journey, you would have been looking for something and it was called the church. They didn't have hotels back then. You would have known about the church, this community of men, women, and children who lived around a common rule of life, love of God and love of neighbor, and you would have known this as a community that takes people in, that offers help, that extends mercy, that provides shelter. You would have known the church as that community that welcomes strangers as guests. 
And that was so ingrained into the life of the church that they had manuals written about how to welcome guests. And let me give you an example of one. It's the, uh, it's the Benedictine rule, the rule of St. Benedict, written in Italy in the sixth century by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what it says. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, out of Matthew 25. Proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith and to pilgrims. Once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure by a bow of the head or by a complete prostration of the body, Christ is to be adored because he is indeed welcomed in them. The abbot shall pour water on the hands of the guests and the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims because in them more particularly Christ is received. The guest quarters above all things are to be entrusted to a God-fearing brother and adequate bedding should be available there. The house of God should be in the care of wise ones who manage it wisely. Isn't that amazing? Slightly convicting of that, just an amazing picture of hospitality. Now, something obvious needs to be said. The church doesn't have that status or place in our culture today. And people aren't, your neighbors and people aren't looking for the church. You know, the, the days of, uh, of standing up a, a sign with a church name on it or sending out a, a mailer and expecting people to flock to the church because they saw a sign or a mailer, those days are long gone. The days of uh, standing up sound biblical preaching and truth and expecting that to be like a magnet that, 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 that neighbors and people outside the kingdom flock in. Those days are behind us. Now, that doesn't mean that sound biblical preaching isn't important and critical and that truth isn't critical. It just means that our neighbors don't care to hear it. And they're not flocking to hear it. Like the church just doesn't have the status it has in the culture that it used to have. Neighbors, our neighbors aren't looking for the church. And I would say this probably, and this may be more true, that we probably aren't looking for our neighbors. And so what we learn in our cultural moment and the history of the church and what we're gonna see in the book of Ruth, what the church is to be, is that God in this moment of the secular West that we live in, God is going to build his kingdom through the mercy and the kindness and the hospitality of his people. Now, how does that happen? How do we show the mercy and kindness of God to our neighbors? This brings us to Ruth chapter one where we start with a more specific question, how do we enter into our neighbor's sorrow? What does it look like to enter into our neighbor's sorrow? Now, first, we've got to see their loss. We've got to see their loss. The story of Ruth 
begins with one of the most tragic pictures you could read, right? Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons who were Israelites who lived in Bethlehem and Judah, famine hits the land and it must've been so severe that they had to flee and they fled to the country of Moab. And when they get there, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons. They go on to marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And they live there about 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, Naomi's two sons die. And so now you have this older woman who has lost a husband and two sons and is left with two daughters-in-law. And now you have three desolate widows who have no protection, no security, and a very uncertain future. You know, a desolate widow in Israel was one of the worst places to be. In fact, that's why when you read the Old Testament and New Testament, over and over, God is giving this special care and giving uh, and exhorting his people to give special care to widows. We see it in James chapter one, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So these three women, these widows, these desolate widows were, were experiencing great loss. And they had an uncertain future. They had lost deeply. And what I want you to see is what you, what you see happening with these three women, these three women of, of great loss is a picture of our world. That, that our broken world is a story of loss. Going back to the, the very beginning in Genesis 3, it begins this story of loss when sin enters the world. What do Adam and Eve lose? They lose the garden. Then they lose their marriage. <laughs> then they lose uh, their son, Abel, because his brother Cain murders. And you go on and Esau loses his birthright. And David loses a peaceful home because of his sin with Bathsheba. The, the Bible is a story of loss and it continues today. Because you know well loss. Some of you have lost a marriage. You've lost a child. Maybe you've lost multiple children. You've lost a job. You've lost income. You've lost reputation. You've lost health. You've lost friendships. Right? The Bible and life in a broken world is a story of loss, that we've lost the beauty of this world and the beauty of what God has intended for us, that we live in a, a world of loss. And yet, much of how we understand people and see people in our world today, in this cultural moment, is around identity politics. And what do I mean by identity politics? I mean that we understand people and we see people in categories, straight or gay, rich or poor, black or white, Republican or Democrat, blue collar or white collar, conservative or liberal. But that's not the way that we're intended to or that God intends for us to see our neighbor. 
God intends for us to see our, our neighbors as people who have lost because of sin. And we see our neighbors that way because we understand what loss is in a broken world. We understand what it is to, to lose and to experience loss. And so if we're going to extend the mercy and kindness of God to our neighbors, it starts with entering into their sorrow and seeing sorrow as loss. Anybody that's experienced sorrow has experienced the loss of something. And so we see their loss and we understand their loss. And, and how do we do that? How do you understand somebody's loss? You've got to spend time with them. And so we invite them in to our homes and into our lives to, to see their loss, to understand their loss and their sorrow. At the age of 36, Rosaria Butterfield, she was a tenured professor in the Center for Women's Studies at Syracuse University. And her and her lesbian partner went to a universal uh, Unitarian church where, where they were, or she was, the head of the welcoming committee, which was a, a, a lesbian and gay advocacy group. Advocacy group. And, and it's interesting when she describes this, up until that point in her life, she had only seen Christians or known Christians as, quote, intellectually impaired. She said they were kind of, they were the kind of, quote, people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride marches that read, God hates gays. But this negative image changed. Her negative image of Christians changed when she began a friendship with a pastor and his wife, Ken and, and, and Floyd, and that friendship eventually led to her conversion to Christ. But I want you to listen to her description of the first authentic Christians that, that she said she, she ever met. Listen to this. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my hosts at the door and, and pulling out my, two, my bag of two gifts, a, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach by something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, if firm, and Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. 
That's why I read from the sixth century with the Benedictine rule. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey with me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script I had become to know, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since this beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd off and on, studying scripture and my heart. Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. Now that's a picture of the mercy and the kindness and the hospitality of God being extended. And a picture of what it means to enter in to someone's life and to seek to understand. But it doesn't stop there. The, the entering into our neighbor's sorrow is not just seeing their loss or seeing their sorrow or understanding it, but it's actually envisioning their restoration. It's envisioning their restoration. Ruth chapter one, when would you say that the restoration of Naomi and Ruth begins? Would you say that it begins when Naomi decided to go back to Judah? Or would you say that the restoration began when uh, Ruth decided to leave her people and go with Naomi back to her people in Judah? The answer is no, neither of those. That restoration begins at the end of verse six. Look what it says. Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's the beginning of restoration. The Lord visited his people. And Naomi in Moab hears word of this and it sets everything in motion. When Naomi hears that the Lord had visited his people, what does she do? I'm going back. And it forced Orpah and Ruth to make a decision. Are we going to stay here in Moab with our people? Or are we going to go with Naomi back to her people? Right? Everything was set in motion by that. And then all restoration begins with God. Think back to Genesis 3. Perfect world, sin enters the world. And, and because of that, Adam and Eve lost everything. Right? The, the fall, we underestimate what the fall has done to our lives and our world. They were absolutely wrecked by the fall utter loss. They lost everything. And what does God do in the garden? He visits them. He sees their sorrow. He sees their loss. He sees their rebellion. He sees their sin. And what does he do? He visits them. And he says in Genesis 3:15, I'm sending a Messiah that's going to make things right and restore everything, Adam and Eve, that you have lost and because of you that your descendants will lose. I'm gonna restore everything. 
And so we see in the Bible, it's a, it's a story of loss, but it's a story of restoration. Israel's restored to the land. Jacob's restored to Joseph. Peter is restored after denying Christ three times. Paul is restored after persecuting and murdering Christians. Even the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is this picture of loss and restoration, right? God became homeless. God became poor. In the person of Jesus, he left glory, he left heaven. That Jesus Christ saw our sorrow and entered into it. That's why we see in this story, Jesus is seen in Ruth. Because as we progress through it, we're gonna see next week that Ruth goes back with Naomi, leaves her home, becomes homeless, leaves security of her people and her family to become poor. And because of that, her going back with Naomi becomes this amazing player in the redemption story. She enters into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She becomes a mother to Jesus. And so you see in Jesus loss, but you also see restoration. You see Jesus, not just in Ruth, but in, in David, in King David. Right, the, the restoration of all things. David, who is the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. That Jesus Christ is restoring all things. And because he's restoring all things, you cannot just see your neighbor's loss, but you can actually envision restoration. You can have an, a vision of what it means for somebody's life to be restored. Look at how it plays out in Ruth chapter one. Look at what Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law in verse nine. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. You see, Naomi envisions her daughters-in-law marrying again. She understands that as a widow that they're in a, a dangerous place without protection and provision and, and an uncertain future. And so she envisions them marrying again. Why? Because she's an Israelite and she knows God's heart for widows. And she knows Deuteronomy 25 verses five through six that describe a clansman marrying a childless widow to protect the widow and to preserve the name of the deceased. She knew God's, God's law that was set up out of his heart that a, a childless widow, that someone would come marry that widow, right? So that the, that widow could be protected and that the name would continue. She knew that. And that's why in verses 11 to 13, we, we read what, what she says to Ruth and Orpah. She says, don't come with me. Don't come with me. I, are you going to wait around? I'm too old to get married again, to have a, a son that could, that could redeem you. I'm too old, right? Now, we don't know exactly what's going through Naomi's mind here. What, did she just have lack of faith of her people in Judah that if those women came back, that no one would step up to do what God had commanded in Deuteronomy 25, that no one would rescue these widows? Maybe that was it. Maybe she had a lack of faith and, and obviously she came out of Judah in the period of the judges. So there was not a lot of faith going on. It was a rebellious time. Maybe it's that. Or maybe, maybe she knew that God had a heart and that God would provide for these women, Ruth and Orpah. And so she was testing their faith. You know, they had been with her for 10 years now. They had heard about her God. And maybe it was a test to see if they would, they would come with her because she knew that God would provide back in Judah. We don't know, but the point is this, is that Naomi envisioned a world for these two women beyond assault and abandonment and enslavement. 
which was a real possibility for widows that were in their position. And we'll see that as the story plays on. Assault, enslavement, all of that was real. And so here you have Naomi, right, in her own pain, in her own hurt, having lost a husband and two sons, stepping outside of herself to envision for these two women who had lost so much, envisioning restoration. That God calls us to, in the chaos of this world, in the secular West, where people aren't looking for churches, to extend mercy and kindness and hospitality to people in such a way that would bring about restoration and fullness and return restoration and fullness to their lives. Rosaria Butterfield, who, who converted to Christ. It's a beautiful story. She writes in her book, Openness Unhindered, she writes a little passage here that captures what we're talking about, about hospitality and mercy and kindness being used to, to build the kingdom and restore fullness, all that was lost in sin. She says, don't let pride stop you from opening your home. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or in the mac and cheese. It likely won't kill anyone as decisively as loneliness will. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup. If you run out of food, make pancakes and put the kids in charge of making that meal. See how much fun that is. And know that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he's instead walking with you and your kids and dogs as you share the Lord's day. One model of how the Lord gives you daily grace in a way of escape. Know that someone is spared the fear and darkness of depression because she's needed at your house on the Lord's day, the day she's never alone, but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. Know that host and guest are equally precious and fragile and that you will play both roles throughout the course of this life. The doors here open wide. They must. You know, I opened the sermon with the St. Benedict rule from the sixth century. Well, there's another section in that manual that talks about uh, the porters who were the ones that, that opened the door when someone would knock on the door. And so in the manual, there's these very detailed instructions for what porters are to do. Listen, listen to this. The porter is to sleep near the entrance to the monastery so that he can hear and respond in a timely way when someone knocks. The porter is to offer a welcome, in Benedict's words, with all the gentleness that comes from reverence of God and with the warmth of love. As soon as anyone knocks, the porter is to reply, thanks be to God. Your blessing, please. He's to say this before he even knows who's on the other side of the door. Now, contrast this with Dorothy Parker, who was a 20th century writer, who would answer the telephone with, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> I 
How do you respond? How do you respond when someone knocks on the door of your life or the door of your home? How do you respond? Is it, is it closer to what fresh hell is this? Maybe not verbally out of your mouth, but you know what's in your heart. Or is it thanks be to God? Let's pray. Father, would you make us a people who bleed mercy, who bleed kindness, who bleed hospitality to our neighbors, knowing that, God, that is how, especially in this secular West and in this culture where the church has, has lost the status it, it has had in the past, and would you use that, that kindness and that mercy and that hospitality to build your kingdom, to restore fullness to those who have lost everything because of sin. And Father, we know what it is to lose everything. Father, we labor under the fall, just like our neighbors. So we think about this story of Ruth. You had Naomi, who was a, an Israelite, who was struggling with bitterness towards you, God, who was wandering, who was wondering if you're good, a struggling believer. And then, and then Ruth and Orpah, who had a very different set of gods in Moab, who had lost as well, that believer, unbeliever alike, Father, we labor under the fall. So would you give us a compassion to enter into those who have lost and have experienced sorrow? And would you help us not only see loss, but envision restoration, God, as you have done with us in sending your son, Jesus. Father, mercy and kindness and hospitality is costly. It requires sacrifice. And so we need you. This is a work of your spirit through us. Would you fill us with your spirit to be this kind of people? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.